What if we could slash transportation infrastructure costs by more than a third? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Infrastructure costs are soaring. Major projects always seem to take twice as long and cost twice as much as originally projected. And that assumes that we can even get the money to build them. But what if we're going about this whole business of creating, maintaining, and repairing infrastructure the wrong way? That's the contention of John Brown Miller, former professor of construction management and civil and environmental engineering at MIT, and founder and president of the nonprofit Barchan Foundation, whose goal is to provide an understanding of how public infrastructure projects are financed and delivered. Today, we'll talk about how public planners need to take a fresh look at the way in which we approach the whole issue. Miller proposes that we look at the problem through the lens of enterprise risk management and consider the entire life cycle of a project from the moment it's designed. In the process, he says, we can save between 30 and 40 percent in total life cycle costs. Let's find out how in my conversation with John Miller. John Brown Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Bob. Why do you believe that the current methods for managing infrastructure in this country are no longer effective? It probably centers on the fact that it's all top-down. What we're doing is we are funding projects because they fit into grant programs or because they have failed or for some extraordinary reason. And what we're not doing is we're not taking care of assets. So instead of a 35- or 40-year life for major infrastructure assets, we're getting 15, 20, 25 out of them. We also don't repair on time. We don't maintain properly because we can't scrape the nickels and pennies together to do proper maintenance. So it's really a logistical problem of putting the right assets in the right place at the right time. We're doing a very poor job of that. My research at MIT leads me to believe there's probably a 35% premium for doing it that way. Well, just for starters, it's like in a lot of cases, we're not actually funding projects at all at the moment to a great degree. So the money up front is problem number one. But you're going beyond that and saying even when we have the money, we're not doing a good job of deploying it in an efficient manner, right? Well, yes. And so if you think about it, the way the grants are being passed out from the federal government down to states and from states down to local governments is that these are for new construction in general. So what we're doing is the grant programs focus on new design and new construction. That is way too short a time horizon for planning. For every dollar you spend on design, you spend about $10 constructing. And that is the scope of most federal grant programs, most state grant programs. But the iceberg that's hidden is that after you spend those $11, there's 100 more dollars coming in operations, maintenance, and repair. 
And that's just not even thought about. As a former civil engineer, I taught at MIT for 10 years. You want to think about the life cycle when you're designing, because if you're going to spend 35 extra dollars on maintenance and repair and operations, why are you worried about $1 on design? It's nothing to do a better design. It's nothing to hire better consultants, to buy better equipment, to buy longer lived equipment. So these are the mistakes that are being made because we don't have a life cycle view when we begin the design. It's not the engineer's fault. It's just the, the time horizon of grants. So do you feel that that dollar on design should be more? Well, it could be more. I mean, people are always worried about, well, we're spending so much money on design. But in the great scheme of the life of the Brooklyn Bridge, the design of the Brooklyn Bridge is probably a penny out of every $100 spent on the Brooklyn Bridge. Do you really want to scrimp on design? Is it a really good time to use lower quality steel that's not going to last so long when that's only a dime out of your dollar? We have the wrong emphasis. And I think some logistic type thinking, some life cycle sustainability type thinking would dramatically change results. I wonder if one of the reasons for that wrong emphasis is that the extent to which a major infrastructure project reflects well on the politicians within that particular locality, new construction definitely looks better for them than maintenance, repair, or design. None of that stuff is really visible to the public. You, you, know, you don't cut ribbons on design projects. You don't cut ribbons on maintenance. And maybe too much emphasis is based on the construction aspect at the expense of the other two ends of the process. No, I agree. From your mouth to uh, Congress's ear, please. <laughs> it's a big yawner to go cut the ribbon on crack sealing and roads. A quick example. There's some pretty good data from the Corps of Engineers. If you take care of the roads properly, if you crack seal road every 50 years, you will replace the roads one less time. That's a big deal. Throughout that 50-year period, not only will you not have to replace them so many times, but you'll have good roads to ride on. So you're not driving through potholes. It's an interesting topic to me. How we think about these things and how we act is so important in how the outcomes are produced. When it comes to funding and participation in construction in one of these projects, what is this middle ground that you envision when you're trying to balance between the public and the private sources in creating these projects? I think the first thing to remember is to separate the funding question from how you do it. For example, you'll see many road projects and some, some transit projects, but, but many, many water projects where the city or the town or the state takes the revenue risk. So it's not a question about revenue, where the money's coming from. It's just a question of what are we going to design, how are we going to build it, and how are we going to operate it. When you put those three functions together and compete across those three functions, we did probably 20, 30 case studies at MIT. Every time, there's a 30 to 40% life cycle cost savings. This is over 30 years. Because your designer is on the same team with the operator. And the operator says, wait a minute, I, I don't want the door there. It's going to be too hard to operate. I want the hatch here. I want this kind of equipment because it's going to be easier to maintain. Or I want this kind of equipment because I don't need energy. It's a filter that self-cleans or something. So the during the process, the design process is infused with how are we going to build it and how are we going to run it. There's so many opportunities for better outcomes. The savings come in the form of 
better communication up front between the designers and the constructors? Is that is that what you're saying? In other words, that yeah. door would be put in the right place in the first place if the constructors were on board with the designers from day one. And because everyone on the team is responsible for the cost side on a bottom line basis over 25 to 35 years. Compare that situation to one where there's a designer he doesn't know who the contractor is going to be because design is separate from construction. This is the old design-bid-build methodology. It's not that old. It's about 50 years old. So the designer doesn't know who the builder is going to be. They're not talking because they can't talk because to talk to that constructor might give him an edge in, in bidding on a low price. And the operator is not involved. It's one of the big jokes in the uh, MBTA in Boston that they build additions to the red line or the blue line. And the first time the operators and the people inside the MBTA figure out what they're going to get is when it opens. They're, <laughs> they're not involved. You can make the wrong part assumptions. You can make some major mistakes in choice of suppliers that, that all lead to additional life cycle costs. So it's my experience. I've done lots of case studies in the United States, but the rest of the world is quite a bit ahead of us on this. They want to plan on a sustainable basis over the life cycle of these major assets. I'll give you one more example, Bob, and then, then I'll, I'll be quiet for a second, but there's a tunnel over in Hong Kong. So they built this tunnel and the 35-year franchise, that's called Lionsgate, I believe. They had a preliminary design that they needed to vent the tunnel. So they put it out to the, on the street on a 30-year basis, and the winning proposer made two big changes in the design. First, he inclined the air shafts so that the, the way this tunnel was lined up, the prevailing winds were coming along. So he inclined the tunnel so that he took advantage of the prevailing winds, which cut down on his energy costs for venting the tunnels. Mm -hmm. Then the other thing he did was he substantially upgraded the road design. And the idea was that a subsurface of the road would never have to be replaced during the entire concession. They were expecting a replacement halfway through and another replacement at the end. And he over-designed. He bulked up the design so that his theory was he'd never have to replace the road. I'm guessing yeah. that that required a higher cost up front right. for that better roadway. And if you're right. not thinking in terms of the 35-year lifespan or however right. many decades is going to go, right. all you're doing is saying his price is higher. Right. So in a design bid built in the traditional American way of doing that road, they would never have thought about inclining the tunnels and saving energy on ventilation. They would have said, well, that guy's got a too high a price. What's wrong with him? He's crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what I'm saying, it goes back to that one cent on design, 10 cents on construction, and a dollar on operations. You make very big decisions in the first few months of a project that if you can save 35% of your life cycle costs, it's worth it to get that higher design for that road or, or to incline those tunnels. The way we talk about these projects in public is typically, if not all the time, this project is announced and we get a price tag. But that right. price tag is for design and construction of the bridge or whatever. It's not an estimated life cycle cost. They're not telling us what it's going to cost over 35 years. They're going to tell us what it costs to build the darn thing. And then I guess after that, we have to worry about additional costs. So we don't yeah. even think in terms of life cycle costs, right? Correct. Because we're used to the notion that it's a public responsibility to operate and maintain and repair. And that notion, too, comes from federal grant policy. If you went back and reread the act authorizing the interstate highways program in 1956, it's very clear in the act that that was a 
one-time shot in the arm by the feds to provide 90% of the first cost of the interstates. And that long-term operation, maintenance and repair was to remain with the states. It's a Hobson's choice because you can't turn down the money for the initial design and construction, 90% of that, because that's a big deal. But if the operations, maintenance and repair costs are 10 times initial construction, that becomes an albatross. And I think that's really when you read these ASCE report cards saying how bad everything is. It's really the results of 50 years of taking 90 cents of initial costs and having future elected officials, legislators, and taxpayers have to pay for 10 times what you took. It's a tough situation, and cities and towns are in trouble. The other thing that it might cause in the minds of the public, an impatient public, it lengthens the time it takes to construct because you're actually saying that I'm, – I'm assuming the design phase will would last somewhat longer based on your proposal, correct? I think the design phases actually go down. Really? Because when you separate design from construction and you ignore O&M, operations and maintenance just isn't part of the conversation – the designers are designing defensively because what they're designing is they're designing against any possible construction of their design by a contractor that could lead to a claim. It's a defensive mechanism. You probably spend too much money on the wrong things, you know, making a lot of details and drawings and stuff like that and putting a lot of caveats and designs. Some contractors, and not, not all contractors, but some contractors have a claims mentality. Infrastructure has earned a well-deserved reputation for being late and not on budget. It's the handoff between design and construction and both the design professionals and the construction industry being on opposite sides of that fence that causes some problems in that handoff. What's the relationship of what you're talking about to procurement, which is extremely problematic? Is what you're proposing, might that lead to more transparency more fairness, more competition. Is that a problem that can be tackled with this approach as well? There is no one king of the hill for how you should deliver these projects. What I've proposed and written on my website, this has been done by other organizations, is that there'd be a mix. You enter a rotary and there's a variety of ways that the government can go out and procure services. The government could go in and hire a designer to do the complete design and hire someone else to do the construction and then maintain and operate the project itself. Or it could hire a team to design and build and then operate the system itself. Or it could hire a team to do all three where it would be a 30-year contract to design, build, and operate and maintain and turn the facility over in good condition at the end of the concession. Or it could go out to hire someone to just do operations and maintenance. It depends on the circumstances. And I think one of the things that governments need to get back in the business of doing is to collect better information about the infrastructure they already own and manage. If you think about it, I mean, how much do we really know about any of the big projects? What, what is it costing on a daily basis to operate and maintain? That's not public information. That's not readily available. The one thing we know is that it always ends up costing approximately twice as much as it, we were told it was going to cost, and that's just for construction. Yeah, but when we hear about those kind of projects, those are all replacement projects or new projects. So they are tear down the bathroom and install a new bathroom in the house. The whole thing's going, and we're going to replace it. We don't know about 
ongoing maintenance costs, repair costs. We don't really have good data or any real visibility into, well, what is the condition of Route 101 along the Pacific Coast? Where do we need to repair and maintenance to extend the life of that road? That's where 90% of the costs should be spent. It's very opaque. So is that why they always get the price tag estimate up front wrong? <laughs> because <laughs> well, out of ignorance or are they deliberately lowballing for other reasons? What happens is I feel sorry for state and local governments because they have this big nut to meet of long-term O&M, which is 10 times the original cost of the, of the facilities. They have other obligations. Education is competing with infrastructure. Uh, healthcare competes with infrastructure. There's lots of things competing with infrastructure, and I, I think this O&M nut is becoming unaffordable. So they're always looking over their shoulders, hoping that the feds will come over the hill with some grant cash. That's also part of the problem. Cities and towns and states will defer maintenance, hoping that new grants will come and save the day. Based on your many years of consulting and knowledge in this area, I'm sure that you speak with constructors and designers and politicians and people like that all the time. Realistically, what are the prospects, you think, for a new way of looking at infrastructure such as you've described today? They're excellent, actually. There's entire countries that are our trading partners, uh, Canada, Australia, Britain, Holland, that have moved to what I call enterprise risk management, which is based on a international standards organization standard. It's ISO 31000. It has standards for uh, managing risks in systems like uh, infrastructure. There are entire countries that operate this way, and their goal is to operate the network. The way they think about it is the level of service being provided by the network, by a transportation network, for example, or a water network. And their obligation is to meet level of service to users and meet revenue and expense commitments to legislators. And they use what would be very familiar to a logistics guy, a supply chain person. That's how they do it. They do scenario analysis. They analyze. You know, they make a list of everything that needs to get done along Route 101 in California. And then they map those conditions against a risk matrix, an XY plot that says, wow, this is really serious, that's consequence. And then the other way they map it is against frequency. And they go back and they look at alternatives. How are we going to move those conditions off the board? And then they do scenario analysis. And they only spend the money they have. And the goal is to keep level of service up. So it's a big logistics exercise and entire countries are doing it. So I think it's going to come. It's just a question of how long people keep looking over their shoulders waiting for somebody up the government stream to pass them some grants. Maybe they're so obsessed with the whole issue of funding in the first place that they haven't even got to that stage of conversation. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Again, I think the most important thing is this is not about where the money's coming from. If you're doing something now that costs you $100 and through better systems I could get it done for you for 65 you don't care where the money's coming from. We just freed up 35 bucks. A lot of this conversation goes off the rails once we start talking about, well, is Goldman Sachs going to fund it or who's going to fund it? You know, it, it? People get confused. Well, it's a really interesting way to look at it from the standpoint of enterprise risk management. A fascinating possibility that we could take a brand new approach to infrastructure and save a lot of money in the process. John Miller, I want to thank you for being with me today to explain this possible way forward. Thank you so much for being with us. 
No, it's a lot of fun, Bob. I really appreciate the chance. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with John Brown Miller, talking about a new approach to designing, funding, and constructing public infrastructure. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where you post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.